chapter. Revelation 8. Now let me just say by way of introduction, if you remember, the book of Revelation contains seven cycles that repeat the time between Jesus' first and second comings. And so with chapter 8, we arrive at the third of seven sections, and that takes us into chapter 11. So chapters 8 to 11 are the third of seven cycles, and then chapter 12 begins the fourth of seven cycles. Now, the interesting thing, though, about this third cycle, it begins this, while it begins the third cycle, so it starts over again and basically repeats what we've seen before, it does so on the tail end of the seventh seal. So we're going to see the seventh seal opened up in the first verse, and that leads into this new unit, this new cycle, which contains seven trumpets. And we're going to see four of them in chapter 8. I think there's two in chapter 9 and one in chapter 11. So remember, 8 to 11 form a single unit. And it, and it has the seven trumpets spaced out. But we're going to look at the first four. Actually, we're going to spend more time on the uh, introductory verses than the four trumpets. Because we're going to see that the four trumpets actually start at verse Seven, But there's a lot of very wonderful truth found in verses 2 to 6, and that's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. But let's read it, beginning at verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much Incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So all of that's taken place along with what is now going to be the first of seven trumpets. Verse 7. The first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth 
because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And then we're going to see God willing next week. In verse 1, there's the fifth angel, and then later on the sixth angel, and then there's a break all the way to chapter 11, verse 15, where we will see the seventh angel. Well, as we back up then in verse 1 of chapter 8, we find a silence, and then we find prayers, verses 3 to 6, and then we find judgments, verse 7 to 13. Really, there's three things in the chapter. Silence, prayers, and trumpets or judgments, as we'll see. Notice first in verse 1, silence. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about one half hour. Now, obviously, this is symbolic to say for a specific predetermined time. There was silence for a short while, right? 30 minutes is deemed by most to be a short time. And silence throughout the Old Testament, because remember, brother, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation in particular, it leans upon the imagery of the Old Testament. So if we went back into the Old Testament, we would find out that silence usually is connected to coming judgments. And that's exactly what we have here. The silence is the calm before the storm. It's really also, I think, an indication of God's patience. Because we're going to see that these judgments, as found in the four trumpets, are intended to cause men to repent from their sins. But we'll see in a couple weeks that, unfortunately, it doesn't have that effect. For example, think of a, a couple of sample texts in the Old Testament. Zephaniah 1 and verse 7. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. Now notice why. For the day of the Lord is at hand. Now here, of course, by day of the Lord is meant the judgment of God. It was coming. Be silent. Hush yourself before such an awesome reality. Or else, Zechariah 2.13, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. And here's the reason. For he is aroused from his holy habitation. God is bringing judgment upon the earth. Brethren, that's exactly what we have here. So we find that the silence of the first verse, the prayers offered during, uh, there in verses 3 through 6, and the judgments that come as the result of the trumpets sounding, verse 7 and following, all happen together. So it's not like there's the one and then a long time the other and then a long time the other. The angels are, are warning the earth about the judgments of God and the prayers of God's people are necessarily related to the judgments of God and then we will find the judgments of God described. All right, thus the silence in heaven refers to a hushing or a calming before the storm. It simply means great judgment is coming. That brings me then secondly, let's skip over verse 2 because we're going to come back to the trumpets in a moment, to prayers, verse 3. 
And uh, verses 3 to 6 teach us many things about prayer. In fact, you may not know this, uh, but uh, if you wasn't aware of it, hopefully you'll know it now tonight, that verses 3 to 6 of Revelation 8 form one of the most beautiful passages on prayer in the Bible. And let me just be a little simplistic and suggest there's two important things about prayer in these verses. First, we find that our prayers in verse 3 and 4 ascend to God. Okay? And then we'll see in verse 5, they avail with God or, or prevail with God. All right? We'll see if you, if you prefer to keep both of those with A's. That's what I did. They ascend to God and they avail with God. All right, notice first they ascend to God. Verse 3, that another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense. Now I want to just point that word out and come back to it and make a little bit of it. Much, much incense, okay? He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints. That's another word, all the saints, not some saints, uh, what we're going to find here with regards to prayer is true of all saints. All saints. Okay, just keep that in mind. And then it says, upon the golden altar which was before the throne. All right? So we have much incense. We have the prayers of all the saints before the throne. Now, you probably know that the imagery here is obviously leaning upon Old Covenant worship. In the Old Covenant temple, there was burning of incense in both the larger and the smaller rooms. Now, remember the larger room, the priests labored in that daily. The smaller room beyond the veil, only the high priest entered that yearly. But there was incense in both. And we know that uh, incense pictured prayer. David actually speaks about his prayers as incense in Psalm 142 and a few other places. Now with regards to the incense, incense, incense in the smaller room... Remember what happened was the high priest entered beyond the veil with two items. In one hand, he had a basin full of blood. In the other hand, he had the, he had the censer, which was a container that held hot coals, upon which he put the incense. Uh, and he did that in order to symbolize the fact that Christ, as our high priest would enter beyond the veil in heaven, and there he would offer up his blood, and he would also pray for us. And so the two items symbolized oblation, that is sacrifice, and intercession. But in the first room, there was always incense burning. There was always a sweet aroma. And that sweet aroma in both places pictured either in the first place it pictured our prayers and in the smaller holy place most holy place Jesus prayers okay so here you have all of the items that would have been brought beyond the veil into the most holy place and so what we have is Jesus prayers 
incense, right? That's what that symbolizes, mingled with our prayers as they find their way before the throne. Brother, surely what it's simply saying is this. Our prayers are made acceptable to God for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Our prayers, as they're offered up humbly for Jesus' sake, are a sweet-smelling aroma before the throne of God. For example, think of 1 Peter 2.5. You also as living stones, now here the imagery is so beautiful, Peter not only says we're living stones that make up the temple, but we're also the priests who minister within it, right? You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, notice, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, okay? Now, one of those spiritual sacrifices we offer up in the temple of God as new covenant priests is prayer. But notice what he then says at the end of verse 5, 1 Peter 2, 5. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Brethren, all of our worship is acceptable. Everything we do, not only our formal worship, but our lives, all of our good deeds, everything we do for God in Jesus' name is acceptable to God for the sake of Jesus Christ. Everything we do, as it were, finds its way before the Father, mingled with the sweet aroma of Jesus' merit. Listen to Dr. Beakey. Christ mingles his intercession with our intercession to cover the taint, selfishness, and earthiness of our prayers. And then he transforms them into that which is acceptable to his Father and presents our poor prayers to him washed in his own blood-purchased merits. This is the imagery of this text, brethren. And the smoke of the incense, verse 4, with the prayers of the saints ascend before God from the angel's hand. Spurgeon has a very beautiful sermon on these verses. And uh, he gave them uh, in a week that was prepping the church for a special season of focused prayer. And this is what he said. He gave a beautiful illustration to underscore how Jesus perfects our prayers. How Jesus renders our imperfect prayers a sweet aroma to the Father. He says this, Sometimes dear friends come to me and ask me to to, um, stamp petitions for them for certain people who may be able to help them. Okay, he's probably thinking of some of the poorer persons in the church who needed some type of letter, a formal letter of endorsement. Okay, and then he says this, But I often find that the words are not spelt correctly, the grammar is faulty, and the petition itself is not very plain. It kind of sounds like my testimony when I wrote it out in early 1995 to join the 
Holland Reformed Baptist Church. I still have it, and uh, the elders were gracious enough to simply let it go with all of the misspellings because they said it was me and it was a wonderful testimony to God's grace. But it's embarrassing to look back on that. I wish I had an aspersion to perfect them for me. All right, he goes on to say, So I say to the petitioners, I know what it is that you want. So I will write out your petition and add my own name to it, and then it may succeed. Spurgeon was well-respected, and whatever it was that they needed, maybe for a rental or a loan or who knows what else, a job maybe, to have the formal letterhead of Metropolitan Tabernacle. Of course, I doubt that they typed it out, but they wrote it out very fanciful and correctly, and then with Spurgeon's maybe stamp on it or signature, it gave weight to the document. He goes on to make his application. So, dear friends, we bring to Christ our poor petitions, all blotted and misspelt. But he does not present them as they are. He knows what we mean and what we need. So he writes them out for us, puts his own signature at the bottom, and thus they become prayers upon which God can now look with approval. This is what we find in the first place, brethren. They ascend to God. Our prayers ascend to God. Now let me just stop and pause for a moment. Our prayers, remember the text says, all the saints... Even the weakest saint among us, even the most ignorant among us, even the most struggling in our midst. If you are a Christian person, there's sufficient incense. Now, go back to the other word, much. Stop and think, brethren, of that word, much, M-U-C-H. There's not a little bit, but there's a lot of incense to render your feeble prayers a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Surely, brethren, this ought to be an encouragement for us to pray, as we'll do here in another 15 or so minutes. What an encouragement it is to know that as I bow my head in my study at 7 o'clock in the morning, my prayers are misspelt, they don't make sense. They're tainted. They're blotted. They're messed up. And yet Jesus mingles with them the sweet-smelling aroma of his own perfect merits. And thus they find their way to the throne. Our prayers find their way before the throne. They avail with God. Verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Now it's important here to see the connection of this. Having emptied the censer of incense and prayer. Okay, the incense was the metal container that contained hot coals taken from the altar upon which the incense was 
burning. And so when that's emptied, he's poured the prayers, if you will, out at the, at the throne, feet of, at the foot of the throne. He takes that empty censer, then he replenishes it, or he fills it with fire again from the altar, but this time not to put more prayers on it or more incense upon it, but he empties the fire on earth. Brethren, this is obviously a highly symbolic passage, isn't it? Keep that in mind when we get to the trumpets. It's not literal. It teaches us truth, but in a symbolic way. In other words, there's a direct connection between our prayers. This is the whole point right here. There's a direct connection between our prayers and the judgments of God poured out in relation to the four trumpets upon the earth. That means to say that in part, the saints on earth are praying for what? That God would vindicate them. Remember what the prayers of of the martyred saints are praying before the throne even now? How long, O God, Until you avenge us, until your justice comes in the form of judgment, and you avenge our blood. Well, brethren, if the saints in heaven are praying for judgment, then the saints on earth are in part praying for judgment. Listen to what William Hendrickson said. The angel takes the censer, now emptied of its incense, and fills it with fire of the altar, and empties it upon the earth, that is... God has heard the prayers of the saints and the judgments upon earth are his answer to them. Now doesn't this sound like that parable that Jesus gave about the unjust judge and then remember his application to it in Luke 18:7 and shall not and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? Though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. In other words, brethren, in part, the saints on earth as those in heaven are praying that God would avenge the blood of his saints and would vindicate his name and his son and his gospel in punishing his enemies. Christians cry to God for relief from their oppression and vengeance upon their enemies for the sake of God's honor. Now, obviously, brethren, they pray for more than this. We're told to pray for many things. Jesus said that we're even to pray for our daily bread. So it's not, it's not like, don't misunderstand this passage. This passage isn't saying only our prayers with regards to God's judgment is mingled with the incense of Jesus' merit and find their way before the throne. No, with that, we have to understand all of our prayers as they're offered up so imperfectly, in the words of Beaky, tainted. Tainted. There, as it were, mingled with the incense of Jesus' 
sweet-smelling merits. Now think about that. Brethren, we need so desperately help. I need help. You need help. We need help. And where are we to go but to the throne room of God? Our prayers, as they're offered up in Jesus' name, mingled with his sweet-smelling aroma, find their way before God. And God hears our prayers. Because the judgments that are meted out, that are poured out upon the earth, are in part in answer to their prayers. Brother, we believe that God answers prayer. Now how prayer and sovereignty go together, I don't know, you don't know, and nobody knows. Save God. I mean, there's good books. The best book possibly is Pink's Chapter in the Sovereignty of God and Prayer. Um, there's other good books uh, and there's Bible texts that help us but brethren at the end of the day we just believe both we believe that God has decreed that everything that happens will happen and he's also decreed not only the ends but the means to the ends and in part those means are the humble believing prayers of his people and I'm thankful, frankly, when I became a Christian in January of 1994, I've never, I can never untie that knot, but it's never been a problem for me personally. I believe God is sovereign and he's decreed everything that will come to pass, including those who will be saved. And yet I believe he will bring that, those decreed events, including those elected to be saved, he will bring all of that to pass in time, in part, through the humble, believing prayers of his people. Listen to what Derek Thomas said. Our prayers may make little impact on those who hear them in this world. Okay, you have to be honest here. You've thought this probably... When you hear a brother or sister pray, maybe I'm just that messed up. I've thought at times in my mind, man, that was the worst prayer I ever heard in my life. I'm not even sure what he said or she said. We do have to speak up too, brethren, by the way, when we're praying in public. Speak up, man. But if that person is Christian, then God heard that prayer for the sake of Christ and he will answer that prayer in keeping with his perfect will. He said our prayers may make little impact to those who hear them in this world. Okay, then he said this, but when they reach heaven, they are sent back as thunder. Where does he get that from? Verse 6. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And then verse 5, the end of it. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. All of that is the result of the prayers. He says, but when they reach heaven, they are sent back as thunder. And then he said this. The power of prayer is truly immense. All right, that brings us then to judgments, verse 7. 
of the first four trumpets. These verses describe the wrath that comes from heaven in part in fulfillment to the prayers of the saints upon God's enemies on earth. Now before I suggest a few things about this wrath as found in the four trumpets or as the result of the four trumpets, let me say a few brief words about verse 2 and the seven trumpets. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and to them were given seven trumpets. First, a few things about the trumpets. First, the seven trumpets. It's likely they reflect back upon the destruction. Well, let me say, let me ask you this. Children probably know this. If I were to ask you children in the Old Testament, what story is there, what account in the Old Testament is there that has seven trumpets? And you would say the fall of Jericho. And you'd be right if you said that. So I think here probably uh, these seven um, trumpets are a reflection upon the destruction of Jericho. If you remember, the priests blew seven trumpets. They, the first six, one a day, and then all seven on the seventh day. And it was after the last trumpet was blown, the seventh trumpet on the seventh day, the city fell. And we're going to see, God willing, in chapter 11, verse 15, when the seventh trumpet is blown, guess what happens? When the seventh trumpet is blown in uh, Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdoms of the world collapse, just like Jericho. Secondly, it's also likely the judgments that these seven trumpets describe reflect the judgments that came upon Egypt back in Exodus 8 to 11. In fact, if we took the time, which we won't, you'll find there's almost direct connection with regards to the seven trumpets to the ten plagues. Beaky summarizes it. He says this way. In both passages, that is the trumpets of uh, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, and the ten plagues of Exodus 8, 9, 10, and 11. Wow, I didn't realize that. I think that is even the same verse or the same chapters. In both passages, terrible things happen to unbelievers, but the people of God are secure. Likewise, both passages do not refer to the final judgment but to regular judgments from God upon his enemies in this world. I forgot to type the rest of that quotation, so I had to make a part of it up. I think I got busy with something and forgot to type it out. So. But if I hadn't told you, you wouldn't have noticed that. But I felt my conscience pricked me a little. But I'm pretty sure that's what he said. If he didn't, he should have. All right, thirdly, by way of uh, kind of a quick introduction to the seven trumpets. The repeated phrase, as it were, as, and like, found throughout chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, 
remind us that these chapters are highly symbolic and not literal. For example, brethren, let me put it as simple as I can. There wasn't literally seven trumpets in heaven. There wasn't. Um, it's figurative uh, language and imagery to teach truth. And thus, all that comes as the result of these trumpets being blown, while there are literal things that are described in these verses, it's intended to simply describe the judgments of God upon the world. For example, look at verse 8. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Brethren, a great mountain wasn't burning and thrown into the sea. It says something like uh, a large mountain was burning. See, it's, it's figurative, um, symbolic language. Or else verse 10. Then a third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like. Now, like means similar. Similar to a torch. In other words, there were similarities between the one and the other. And you could do that with all of the... Um, Seals, by the way, and, and the trumpets and the bulls when we get to them, because they're just going to say the same things that the seals and the trumpets said. Remember, it's repetitious. All right, let's then go into uh, three things about this judgment, and then we'll be done. Three things about the wrath that comes upon the earth as the result of the first four trumpets. First of all, it's present. It's present wrath. The judgments or wrath described is present and it's now being poured out on the earth. Remember, this isn't something that will happen. This isn't something that has happened. This is something happening. This is something happening. Think of this text. Has it ever, it used to cause me some kind of a uh, confusion in Romans 8, I mean Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. See, brethren, this is where the wrath comes from. It comes from heaven, right? It comes from the throne. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Brethren, God's wrath. How is God's wrath now being poured out on the earth? Well, Possibly in many ways, but certainly in all of the things described under the first four trumpets symbolically. And thus calamities, tragedies, disasters of this world, remember we saw it under the horses, same thing, are all in part expressions of God's present righteous judgments upon the ungodly in the world. Now remember, we I said this last time, those four horses, remember, with reference to the seals. The first one was the gospel victorious, and then you had the other three that spoke of of of, um, of hardship and, and suffering and death and 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 peril and sickness and, and wars and all those other things that happen in a fallen world. That's the same thing here described under the four trumpets, brethren. And remember I said then that even Christians have to endure those things. But they endure them very differently. Do you remember why? 
because we're sealed. Remember that? God keeps us safe. In fact, that sealing is going to come back, I think, under the fifth, maybe the sixth trumpet. Because there's going to be a host of demonic activity unleashed. That's just talking about the fact that there's demons. There's spiritual warfare in this earth. But the demons aren't able to hurt God's people. Do you know why? Because they're sealed. We're going to come back to that in a few weeks. So while all people on earth have to endure all of the hardships here spoken about, the calamities and the hardships and the tragedies and disasters of this, of this world, they fall upon God's enemies for a very different reason than they fall upon God's people. They fall upon God's enemies. Why? Because it's the wrath of God. It's judgment of God upon them. And uh, they, it falls upon us, brethren, as a means to test us and purify us and chasten us and drive us back to God in Christ. Right? It happens. Accidents happen. They happen to the saved and unsaved. Children of Christians die just as children of non-Christians. Just tonight, the, the doorbell rang and nobody ever comes to our house, rarely. And those we know who come, they just open the door and come in. So when the doorbell rings, that means usually it's Somebody with a white shirt and a black badge, Seventh-day Adventist, or Mormon. Or in this case, it was the fella in a blue shirt and a silver badge that was a policeman. And I figured the first thing was probably for the neighbor. And um, I was going to say, I don't know anything, didn't see anything. But uh, he said, is Angeline Waters here? What did my wife do that the police came to get her? Well, uh, can I help you, officer? That's my wife. Well, we have a report that your vehicle was in an accident. No, my vehicles are right there, both of them. Uh, a blue four-door. Um, it, it was Saturn. And then my wife is there. That's Becca's car. That's in my name. And right there, my heart sank. And the officer was taking forever to tell us that it was a minor, a very minor accident. I'm like, officer, what, tell us what's going on, man. Okay, it was nothing serious. In fact, the, 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 the cars didn't even stop. They barely touched each other and they moved on. And one of the, the other car that got touched took a picture of the blue car that's in, registered in your name, and we just have to follow up. By the way, they followed up, and they, 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 they didn't file any charges to either driver. But brother and I thought about it afterwards. That very well could have been something more serious. It could have been an officer informing us that one of our daughters is not coming home that night. Brother, that happens. But it happens for Christians in a very different way and purpose for non-Christians. Tragedies, hardships, sufferings come upon us all. We all live in the same earth 
That's the object of God's wrath. And yet wrath, these things do not harm us because we're sealed. They come upon us, but only to perfect us and to humble us, and to drive us to God and ultimately bring us good and Him glory. It's present. Secondly, it's partial. In relation to each of the first four trumpets, we find its destruction is partial. A third of the trees and grass are burned, for example. A third of the sea becomes blood. A third of fresh water becomes bitter. A third of the sky becomes darkened. According to chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, these judgments were also intended, not only as an expression of God's wrath, but to humble sinners and lead them to repentance. That's what chapter 9, verse 20 and 21 says. But the tragedy is, by nature, if that's all we have is that, it will never humble us. We need grace to change the heart. And so people, they don't humble themselves and repent from their sins in the face of tragedy. But what do we do by nature in the face of tragedy? We ultimately what? We rebel further and sometimes we even blame God and curse God. That's what people do by nature. That's what we all would have done had God not come to change our hearts. And brethren, you know it because even as Christians, you're tempted at times in the midst of difficulty to have thoughts about God that are not becoming a Christian. And to play the pity party. Woe is me. And to become a practical atheist. I was talking to somebody today and I told him, you know what, brother? I just need to believe what I've been preaching. That's what I need to do. I just need to do and believe what I've been telling everybody else to do and believe. It's partial. And then finally, it's a preview. Verse 13. And I looked and heard an angel. There's a technical variant, angel or, or um, eagle. Flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In other words... The judgments that the wicked are now experiencing in this world are but a preview of the judgment to come. They're a foretaste. Okay, Christians get a foretaste of glory divine in the earth, don't we? We get a foretaste of glory divine in the earth. And the wicked get a foretaste of what awaits them. These judgments are not only present, partial, but a preview. Brethren, surely we all have reason many times over to run to God in Christ tonight and find in Christ salvation for our souls. For there the enemies of our souls can not harm us. They cannot destroy us. And with those thoughts in mind, brethren, we want to sing hymn 690.